The scripture reading for tonight comes from the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. In the days of Harasaras, the Harasaras who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when the king sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and servants, the army chiefs of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces being before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the capital, both great and small, a banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings caught up with cords of fine linen and purple, to, and purple to silver rings and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to the law. No one was compelled, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as every man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to the king. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs who served him as chamberlains to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes of her beauty for she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. At this, the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. The word of the Lord. So Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned, not once, there's no God. Or if God's here, God's hidden in the background or underneath or in the cracks somewhere. There's no prophet in Esther that hears God's voice. God has no instructions or directions or appearances. Esther, the book of Esther takes place, I guess, after the time when God was all flashy and obvious. This sounds familiar. We may say that we hear God's voice in scripture or in our neighbor or in the poor, but that's a little bit of a different thing than God walking in the garden and having a conversation with Eve. God's not a character in the book of Esther. It's the story of Esther. It's a folktale. It's more timeless than historical. It takes place in the capital of the Persian Empire, but it could be any empire any year. Israel was defeated by Babylon, and Babylon defeated by Persia, and now the Jewish people are scattered across this enormous empire. And the king of the greatest power the world had ever known, according to the book of Esther, is a silly, pompous, power-hungry buffoon. 
So as the story opens, what Sonia read for us, he's throwing this huge party, a party to outdo any party that's ever been given. He had special couches made of gold for his hundreds and hundreds of guests to sit on, and these golden goblets made for them to drink wine out of. He just really wanted people to know how rich he was. It's a party that lasts for 180 days, more wine than you can imagine, lavish food, entertainment, whatever drugs they were doing in the Persian Empire at the time, maybe. I don't know what you do at a party that lasts six months. I know I'd be dead around three. Six months of drunken revelry? And to top off this debauchery, the king in a drunken haze says, fetch me my queen. He thinks it would be great to parade her in front of the guests in nothing but her crown so that they can observe her beauty. But in an unheard of move for that day and age, Queen Vashti refuses. The king just loses his mind from rage. He's totally unhinged, humiliated. So as people try to come in and they try to calm him down a little and they have this idea that they hope will soothe his inflated, volatile, juvenile ego. How about this, they say, king? We'll gather the most beautiful young virgins from every corner of the empire into a harem, a great big harem. And then each night, a different one of the young virgins will come into you. And and whichever one you like best, that will be the new queen. This does somehow manage to mitigate his rage. And so it happens that one of the beautiful young virgins that's rounded up is Esther. She's an orphan of an exiled Jewish couple who has been raised by her uncle Mordecai. But before these girls can even enter the king's bed, they have to undergo this rigorous beautifying regime. The text says, six months with oil and myrrh, then six months with spices and ointments, a year of sloughing and moisturizing and being perfumed, rid of any natural fragrance. The whole thing might be totally infuriating if it wasn't so over the top that it's just a little bit funny. Whether or not every person lived up to them, the Jewish people had guiding principles. They had checks and balances to guard against decadence. There were purity laws, but there were not year-long cleansing treatments. To them, the lives of the Persian elite seemed ludicrously decadent. The book of Esther is making fun of them. It is mocking the wealthy power elite. The people in charge are moronic. Their behavior is absurd. Let yourself be defined, be guided by the dominant paradigm. You will be twisted into something farcical. Plastic surgery after plastic surgery. $300 jeans, reality TV. How has this happened? The book of Esther is mocking powerful men and what they desire. The book is dripping with sarcastic humor. I don't think I ever learned that in Sunday school. I'm not sure Luther, all offended by the pagan naughtiness, quite got it either. Or he just didn't care for the sense of humor. There's a Greek version of Esther, which is a totally different feel than the Hebrew. There's no comedy. 
the narrator delivers his grave lesson in a serious tone. But the Hebrew, Hebrew version is meant to get you laughing, laughing at the rich and the powerful, the absurdity of the human species that seems blind to the fact that they're animals who grow hair all over their bodies. Mammals, we are. The king's eunuchs spend a year moisturizing and perfuming the virgins so they're fit to come near the king. When at last they're ready to enter the king's chamber, if the virgin doesn't delight him, she'll never be summoned back again. But Esther, the Jewish orphan, succeeds in delighting the king so much, so much more than all the other virgins, he is so delighted that he sets the royal crown upon Esther's head. Esther certainly isn't your typical saint. She doesn't conduct herself like someone who is zealous for the laws of her people. But she does very much become a Jewish hero. I like that in a hero. So Esther, who has never made her Jewish identity known, is suddenly queen of the Persian Empire. But now enter the evil villain Haman. The king's a buffoon. Haman, the evil villain, is more treacherous. He's a prince in the king's court who, for no particular reason, is suddenly made famous, given the highest place in the kingdom. And the king demands that everyone bow down to him wherever he goes. And most people actually do it. Eunuchs, lemmings. But not Mordecai. Esther's uncle, he refuses to bow down to vacuous fame. This makes Haman so mad that he decides not only to hang Mordecai, but to annihilate every Jew that ever lived. The evil villain casts lots. Purr is the Persian word for that. To see sort of arbitrarily on what day this slaughter should happen. And the die last lands on the 13th day of the month of Adder. So Haman goes to the king and he says, King, there's these strange people, king. They're scattered among us. They have their own ways. They don't honor our ways. So he says, it does not profit this kingdom to tolerate them. Let them all be destroyed. It will be better for the empire. So the king, it seems without giving it much thought, sends out a decree to destroy, to slay, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. Was there a time when this seemed like farcical hyperbole? A gross impossibility? An exaggeration so preposterous as to seem comic? If so, it isn't anymore. The farce is not funny when it becomes reality. How in the world does this happen? The king agrees to Haman's outrageous plan. He doesn't really seem to have a mind of his own. Mordecai learns of the king's decree to kill all Jews, and he sends this urgent message to Esther. Esther, please help. Speak to the king. I didn't bow down to Haman. And the next thing you know, our people, all our people, are about to be annihilated. But Esther is reluctant, actually, because she says, if you go into the king's court without being summoned, you're put to death. 
The only chance you have of, you know, remaining alive if you appear in the king's chamber without being summoned is if he happens to hold his golden scepter towards you. And Esther says the king hasn't summoned her to his chamber for a whole month, so the golden scepter may not be likely to point in her direction. The euphemistic nature of the golden scepter is pretty obvious, yeah? But Mordecai is adamant. He says, look, Esther, just because you're in the king's palace, you won't escape any more than all your people. If you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance may rise for the Jews from another quarter. But who knows, Mordecai says. And this may be the most important line in the whole book. Who knows? Maybe you've been put in this place at this time to subvert this evil machine. He doesn't say he knows for certain. It's not like God is whispering in his ear to deliver some unambiguous prophetic message. Mordecai doesn't offer Esther an infallible directive from God. He poses a question. Who knows? Maybe you're here at this time to do something. There's no royal telephone. There's a question. Maybe you're in this place in this time for a reason, so that you might act to do something, take a risk. God's not that obvious. But maybe, who knows, maybe you have a part to play. Forget the stupid rules of the king. Do something to help your people get free. So Esther, who so far has been a little bit like a typical beauty queen, submissive, quiet, fine, just fine to be intimate with the power if the power wants her. Doing whatever she can to delight the king. But at this moment, she shifts. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. I love this moment. It's so brave and beautiful. Now, like many other women in Hebrew scripture who come into their own after men create crises they can't resolve themselves, she acts. But it's not at all like some saint amidst blossoms of purity, like the Catholic saint Agnes, who was thrown into a brothel but somehow miraculously remains pure. Esther is decidedly not a hero of the nunnish type. She schemes, she flatters, she goes to the king's chamber and does what she does, and voila! the golden scepter points in her direction. In fact, the king is so delighted with her that he says, what do you desire, Esther? I will give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she says, I just come to dinner tomorrow and bring Haman with you. In the meantime, Haman has been constructing this ridiculously huge scaffolding to hang Mordecai. And now once he gets his invitation, he starts bragging to everyone, I am the only one that's invited to the queen's dinner. I'm so special, I'm so big, I'm so famous. So he puts on his finest and he goes to Esther's banquet table and they all sit down at the table and they start drinking wine and the king is so pleased with Esther that he says, Esther, is there anything you want? Anything at all, just ask. And she says, if I have found favor in your sight, let my life be given to me and the life of my people for we have been sold to be destroyed to be slain and to be annihilated. And the king is all like, 
What? Who? How has this come about? Where's the man who would presume to do such a thing? Of course, he's been totally involved in the process. But Esther says, he's right here, and she points to Haman. It's the wicked Haman. And the king looks at Haman, and he's full of rage, and he has his eunuchs take Haman to the gallows, prepared for Mordecai, and he hangs him. And the king gives Mordecai Haman's house, gives him his place in court, and then the king issues another decree that on the day that the Jews were supposed to be slaughtered, instead they will defend themselves. So instead of being annihilated, the Jews are saved. And Mordecai makes a decree for all time, from now on, forever, this day, the 15th day of the month of Adar, the Jews will celebrate that they were freed instead of destroyed. They'll celebrate with feasting and holiday-making. They'll send good food to each other and give to the poor. They'll celebrate this way on the day that their sorrows were turned into laughter. And the feast day shall be called Purim, after the purr, the lots, the dice that Haman cast. And it actually has been celebrated in this way to this day over the centuries. Quite merrily, in the spirit of the book of Esther, it's a really funny sort of feast. Esther's read aloud in the temple, and whenever Haman's name is mentioned, which is 54 times, everybody rattles these special noisemakers made for the occasion. Some people write Haman's name on the bottom of their shoes and they stamp their feet to blot out this name every time it's mentioned, as instructed by the ancient rabbis who have a sense of humor. There's special food for this feast, like these little triangle pastries filled with poppy seeds called Haman's ears. So everyone eats Haman's ears. Or a special loaf of bread called the eyes of Haman. It's baked in the shape of a human head with eyes made of boiled eggs. Sort of funny. One of the most important obligations of the feast day is to eat a festive meal. Don't you love an obligation like that? And not only eat, but drink wine. Drink lots of it. The sages of the ancient Talmud said that people should drink so much wine on Purim that they can no longer distinguish between the phrases cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. Later, some rabbis said, maybe after all, you should just drink a little more than usual. But still, you're obliged to drink, laugh, have fun. People dress up in costumes as a way of emulating God who disguised her presence, but who was nevertheless among them quietly hidden, maybe a bit hard to glimpse, but beneath holding everything. We need to be able to laugh at ourselves sometimes. The absurdity of the human species who tend to self-importance, who fluctuate so readily between grandiosity and shame, mammals who spend a lot of time and resources trying to convince themselves and others that they are something that they are not, fearless, blemishless, immortal. Humans always trying to be less human. Laughing at kings is a way of not giving the powerful the power that they so pompously claim. This meal isn't at all like a six-month party for the rich and famous. It's really little, and it's really humble, and it's really basic. And subversive, I think, in that. 
And that it points to a God who reveals God's self, not in glory, but in brokenness, not in power, but in vulnerability. And who knows, maybe we are meant to do something with that. Maybe we have been put in this place, in this time, to play a part. Eat the mercy. Don't succumb to cynicism. Take a risk for the well-being of the world. If you keep quiet at such a time as this, 